It's time for Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element. Element. Element FM. Welcome to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. You are listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. 95.7 in Ottawa, 106.5 in Toronto. And of course, anywhere across the country, if you download the Radio Player Canada app and type in 95.7 ELMNTFM or 106.5 ELMNTFM and listen on your device of choice. 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. I'd like to welcome our first guest to the show, Lisa Ashton. And she is a PhD candidate. She's involved with geography, environment, and geothematics at the University of Guelph. And it's a pleasure to have her on. She's talking uh, and sharing things with her about specifically an article that she co-wrote in the conversation. And it has to do with how Canada and Canadian agricultural producers can lead the way in climate action, which is really interesting because there's been some discussion uh, prior saying that uh, agricultural uh, agriculture has long been uh, framed as, as more of a deterrent uh, to this uh, instead of meeting uh, and reducing targets. So, uh, Lisa, it's a pleasure to have you on the show today. Yeah, thanks for having me. So... Um, what can you tell us? I, th- I think this is pretty interesting that you're saying, um, you know, that, that they, can, they can be looked at in a way to help reduce uh, these, these greenhouse gas emissions. But before we get there, can you tell us, for people that may not be familiar, uh, how is agriculture specifically tied in to the idea that they are sort of, uh, y- you know, not really in line with more more um, uh, catalysts for, for producing more, I guess, of, of greenhouse gases? Uh, sure. So agriculture can be both a source and a solution to climate change. Mm. In that regard, um, agriculture is an emitter of CO2 emissions from uh, managing soils and fuel combustion from machinery, but it is also an emitter of nitrous oxide emissions and methane emissions. Those nitrous oxide emissions come from fertilizer use, and those methane emissions come primarily from um, raising livestock and manure management. Um, But agriculture is uniquely positioned to also be a solution by absorbing CO2 out of the atmosphere by sinking that back into the soils. Um, So farmers can adopt various best management practices to, to do this. Um, And they can also substantially increase their efficiencies in nitrous oxide and methane emissions as well. And how can they do that? Um, By adopting various practices such as anaerobic digesters, which are really interesting pieces of technology that um, manage manure um, and can turn that the energy from that manure into biogas, which is actually a renewable energy. Um, And we're seeing Canadian farmers adopt these um, adopt adopt um, and implement anaerobic digesters on their farms. Um, and they can reduce their nitrous oxide emissions by adopting more efficient practices with um, synthetic nitrogen use, but also manure management. Um, so following the four R's, so putting nitrogen on in the right place, the right time, the right location, um, is really important. And we're seeing a lot of research and application advances in this as well. How uh, labor intensive is it to do those kind of things? So it varies um, on different farms in terms of what sort of access they have to labor, if that farmer has off-farm employment. So um, in terms of implementing, it also changes on what practices they're implementing. And a lot of farmers have have been doing this for a long time. So for example, a practice that has shown promise in um, increasing carbon sequestration is the adoption of no-tillage. And we've seen widespread adoption in Western provinces, most notably Alberta and Saskatchewan. Um, So it really depends on how those practices fit in with the current um, production systems that farmers have in place. And that that adoption varies based on what what sort of systems they already have in place. Uh, No tillage, toiling the soil, uh, I I thought was, was a practice that all farms did in agriculture. Um, so we've we've seen, um, especially in Western provinces, a massive adoption of no-tillage, and this depends on what sort of crops farmers are producing, if this is viable, and also their soil type and the, the climate that they're in. Um, but the adoption of no-tillage is, is being seen as a, a 
valuable agro-environmental stewardship practice in the sense that it's not tilling up the the topsoil and maintaining that soil structure which mm. also has really important co-benefits for water filtration um, and maintaining soil organic matter more generally mm. Um, you mentioned uh, a, a, a carbon getting back into the soil. That's that's a good thing. Uh, yeah, that's a great thing. So, soil organic carbon. Um, this is is not the the primary focus of my research. I more right. look at different policy instruments that can encourage farmers to adopt yeah. these practices. Okay. Um, but. Um, increasing soil organic carbon is a is an aspect an important aspect of soil organic matter um, and that increases the overall soil health that farmers have mm. which can have um, depending on the farm and how the that's increased can have co-benefits in terms of soil health and productivity and potentially even profit margins yeah it's interesting you know I remember uh, hearing about something about about soil and and, and using soil uh, the same the same acreage year after year and how you, you can you can sort of bleed it dry of its nutrients without uh, giving it a break and letting it sort of recuperate um, so yeah giving that that break is called summer foul but um, or, or leaving fields foul but um, some research has shown that um, leaving fields bare can actually um, increase the um, loss of carbon. So what we're mm. seeing a lot of farmers adopt is a uh, practice called cover crops. So keeping some sort of crop on the farm year round oh. um, can actually improve the soil health overall. Um, and that, that depends on how it's implemented and, and where that's implemented as well. Well, that's interesting because uh, that might explain some of the questions that my own family has had driving down, uh, you know, a country road going, what crop is that? Well, yeah, yeah, exactly. Really <laughs> so that's just a cover crop they're using to help uh, help help keep the soil uh, nutri- nu- uh, full of nutrients and let it uh, uh, recuperate. Yes, exactly. Interesting. Well, I see. I've learned something new right now. That's great. <laughs> um, now you mentioned uh, policies and those kind of things and what companies can do. Um, I, I know that um, that that one of those areas is is to uh, is do a lot of what uh, what you can do when you when you for instance take a plane right you can you can buy the you can buy the carbon neutral uh, footprint back kind of thing um, when you're doing that. Yeah, so that's um, a really interesting thing that we're seeing, especially emerge in the U.S., is voluntary carbon markets um, that companies, individuals even, and governments can participate in and buy carbon credits from um, farmers or people managing forests or wetlands um, and buy those carbon credits from those land stewards. Um, There's interesting companies such as Indigo Agriculture and Nori in the U.S. that are launching pilot programs specifically allowing farmers to participate and find ways to participate in carbon markets. Um, in Canada, we there is the greenhouse gas offset market in Alberta, where um, industries that are emitting over 100,000 tons of CO2 equivalent are able to offset some of those emissions by purchasing them from farmers that have adopted practices such as conservation cropping. Now, that, that sort of neutralizes what the one company is doing, but obviously you wouldn't want them to just rely on that. You want them to start reducing their own footprint in this area, yes? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So um, there's an organization called Science Based Targets. And what they do is they help companies um, like Maple Leaf or Microsoft who have these really ambitious carbon neutral or net positive targets to guide them in how they can reduce their in-house emissions. So increasing efficiencies in their production um, and then what they can't offset within in-house, um, they're able to have this um, really valuable option of purchasing carbon offsets from people like farmers who have the capacity to um, absorb CO2 out of the atmosphere. Is there a particular area of either Canada, the United States, or anywhere else around the globe that you're aware of that is doing a particularly good job of this kind of thing, uh, of, of, you know, taking action to reduce their print and, and the emissions that they're producing in this area? Um, so within Canadians' borders, um, Alberta and Saskatchewan and other Western provinces have seen success in transitioning croplands um, from 
carbon sources to carbon sinks. Um, so what just within the context of their soils, their, carbon, their soils are absorbing more carbon than they're releasing. Um, so that's been really successful since the 1990s, but unfortunately we're, we're starting to see that that positive trend being reversed. Um, and uh, that's for a variety of reasons, such as practice changes or increases of um, nutrient use. Um, but then there's also really successful examples in Australia with their carbon farming initiative. Um, and then around the world, we're seeing other countries adopt practices um, to transition from a greenhouse gas source to a sink. Um, but we, we need more governance mechanisms and policies to support this transition in a more succinct and successful way because we do have our Paris Accord Agreement um, that is, is coming close that we need to we start meet, meeting. Um, and agriculture can play a really valuable role in meeting those targets. Um, you use the word sink, uh, carbon sink. What, what, can you explain that for people? What does that actually mean when you, when you say that? Yeah, of course. Um, so soils can act as a carbon sink, just like um, forests and wetlands. Um, and what that means is that they're actually absorbing more carbon than they're putting into the atmosphere. So when something's a source, they're admitting carbon dioxide, and then when they're a sink, they're, they're sucking that CO2 out of the air. Okay. I'm just going to jump in and mention that you're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. That is 106.5 in Toronto, 95.7 in Ottawa, and anywhere across the country if you download the Radio Player Canada app and type in 106.5. Or 95.7 ELMNTFM, and uh, just follow the directions. Listen on your device of choice anywhere across the country, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. My guest is Lisa Ashton. She's a PhD candidate. She's with, with the University of Guelph, and we are discussing uh, Canadian agriculture uh, pro, producer, producers and how they can lead uh, the way for uh, um, uh, climate action in reducing their greenhouse gas emissions. What what makes Canada so uh, um, so special uh, or so unique in terms of want to, being able to lead the way in this area, Lisa? Uh, yeah, that's an interesting question. So Canada, um, as you know, has a large land mass. So just in pure numbers of acres, there's lots of potential um, for um, transitioning from a greenhouse gas, um, for, for soils to transition from a carbon source to a carbon sink. Um, and then what we're also seeing is that agriculture, especially in Canada, the farmers here are innovators. They've adopted these practices and they've had success in them. Um, so there's lots of potential to amplify and elevate that success that we've already seen. Mm. Now, you know, when I when I look at, at read through the article and you, you mentioned some of these numbers already, but, you know, when we, we see numbers like... Uh, for instance, Canadian agriculture, 2018 accounted for 8.1 percent of 59 megatons of national GHG emissions, greenhouse gas emissions, uh, excluding fossil fuel, and um, then reduced the emissions to by 6.2 megatons. That, these numbers are astronomical for the average person. I think. Well, what does this actually mean? What? How does that? What? What? What is the actual impact of 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 these numbers? Um, so agriculture is a, a, a sector that is contributing to greenhouse gas emissions, um, but compared to other more larger sectors in the country, um, it's, it's actually a, along the same lines as waste management. So mm. Canadian agriculture, while it does contribute to greenhouse gas emissions, um, it also has the potential to be a um, solution to greenhouse gas mitigation. So that's why it makes, that's why agriculture, the sector, in, especially in Canada, is so unique. Um, and that there is this potential to substantially reduce greenhouse gas emissions, but then also to increase the um, carbon sequestration in soils. Um, how are the, the people involved, the farmers, the industry itself, um, how do they view this in terms of wanting to participate in, in, in get this down. And I guess what I'm, I'm looking at is there's always a cost to things. And, um, and farming is an expensive business. Uh, just their equipment that they use uh, is very expensive. Um, so when you add something like this into the mix uh, for people that, that are just looking at it, trying to get into it, do you know any, very much about that side of it, if there's much resistance or, or what they're saying about a timeline? 
Uh, yeah, of course. Um, so in I, I'm starting the initial stages of my research, so I haven't directly engaged with Canadian producers on this front, but there's some really interesting research coming out of Australia, particularly pertaining to the costs of, mm. of participating in carbon markets and what the opportunities and trade-offs might be for farmers. And what they're finding is that when um, carbon management is sold solely as a financial um, opportunity, it's um, missing out on the full picture of potential opportunities that can benefit both the agricultural community and farmers um, individually when they participate in carbon markets. Um, so elevating the conversation of the different co-benefits that might come from adopting um, certain practices that have shown potential in greenhouse gas mitigation and carbon sequestration. Um, and those co-benefits might be um, increasing their soil health, um, maybe there's the opportunity to reduce time and labor, um, and then also the opportunities in terms of um, potentially reducing the agri-inputs that they're using. Um, so yeah, there's a variety of different co-benefits that can come, um, but it, it's up to the individual farmer and, and their experience with agri-environmental stewardship, and they know their business best in terms of what's feasible to adopt and what's not feasible to adopt. So it will be interesting to see once carbon markets, um, particularly these voluntary markets that are emerging out of the U.S., if they potentially come to Canada, if they're viable for individual farmers to participate in. And, and what is the uh, government's role in, in this? So in, um, on the, a national scale, um, the um, federal government is set to launch a greenhouse gas offset system um, within this next year that farmers can participate as credit holders or carbon credit holders. So that's on the federal level. Um, and then in each province, um, they're responsible for their own carbon pricing. And we've seen that um, farmers in Alberta are participating in their offset system and farmers as well in Quebec have started to participate in their offset system as well. So it, it varies from province to province. Okay. Do you know if we're seeing uh, uh, just in general, um, are we seeing um, carbon, uh, organic carbon levels uh, being uh, are they are they reducing are they you know are they being depleted or are we seeing uh, an increase uh, is there any change happening uh, so since um, in the early 1990s um, because of the Western province's success in increasing carbon sequestration uh, we saw an increase of um, Canadian cropland soils becoming carbon sinks but since 2000, approximately since 2011, we've seen a declining trend in this. Um, and that's for various reasons. And one, um, one reason is the switch from perennial to annual crop production. Yeah. What, why was that uh, change made? Uh, a lot of the, these um, changes, a lot of them are driven for, from market reasons, for the demand of certain products, um, and then individual farmers' decisions on, on, on what they they're choosing to grow and why um yeah it varies it varies um from province to province um can you give us an example of what what kind of products might have changed i i, I so so you're you're saying that uh, these aren't the same products that they're growing there hasn't been a change in the in, in a in a uh, a crop that has been changed from a from a um perennial to uh, uh um Annual. No, the, the change in types of crops. Yes, okay. And one, one, for example, is um, increasing demands of soy and um, mm. corn as well. Right, okay. Uh, good to hear. Now, if we look to the future, um, you know, uh, considering the climate, and considering even the situation we find ourselves in now, uh, is there opportunities that you see that, that are, are coming up because of either COVID-19, which we're trying to see some kind of, you know, uh, uh, light at the end of the tunnel with, with this? Um, but I, I, I'm not sure if it's the same in this industry as it might be for others. Uh, because of the, uh, the, the lockdown and the shutdown of many industries, uh, I know agriculture keeps going. It, it keeps growing. It has a seasonal thing that must be adhered to. Um, but do you do you see a, an opportunity that you know it it gives the industry a chance to to look at maybe making some changes because of the situation? Yeah. So um, 
uh, particularly pertaining to carbon markets, they're an opportunity for farmers to diversify their income. So not only would they be selling the products that are coming off of their fields, such as corn, soy, wheat, what have you, um, they can also be selling the carbon that they're sequestering in their soils. So it's an opportunity to diversify their income, which may make some farms more resilient. Um, and then in terms of um, rebounding from COVID, that, that's a, a very tricky question, but um, there seems to be a growing interest in green investment and how that can stimulate some sectors and some economies. So it'd be interesting to see how that plays out in the agricultural sector. Are you familiar with any, uh, you've mentioned, obviously, there's, there's some interaction of the industry on a global scale because of what you're talking about, the success in Australia and, and, and other things that are going on in the United States, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, how close-knit is the industry in terms of either sharing or, or being aware of what's going on in different parts of, of the world around either advancements or, or those kind of things? Yeah, I would say um, Canada is is quite aware and and can be a leader in in sustain in agri environmental sustainability, of course. Um, so I think they're quite in tuned with um, what's working and what's not working in different regions of the world. Mm. Um, you mentioned uh, that you're you're involved with policy. Um, how 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 in in what way and and do you get involved with this with with policy? So currently, um, my research is looking at different, um, exploring the different enabling conditions that are necessary to facilitate and support Canadian farmers in implementing these natural climate solutions. Um, so looking at different policy instruments that may either be complementary to each other or may um, be able to um, facilitate and support farmers in adopting these practices. So like we mentioned, um, carbon markets, both voluntary and um, government-led, and then there's also um, interesting opportunities for cost share programs um, to support the, um, the initial costs of adopting certain practices. Um, so just looking at how these different policy options can um, help advance Canada's role as a um, sustainable source of agri-food products. Mm. You said you're just getting started with your research. How long uh, will this be going on for? When, when will this be completed? Um, hopefully within the next two years. Oh yeah, great. Uh, and you'll are you going to be looking right at right across the country? Are you focusing in on one specific area? Uh, I'll be looking at the the national level across the country, mm. um, just because there's lots of different interesting things popping up with it in each province, um, and I'd like to explore all of them. Mm. And what do you hope that will come out of this? Um, so what I, I, my objective is, is to better understand and to support um, Canada's role in being a sustainable source of agri-environmental, or sorry, agri-food products. Um, so in any way, shape, or form that I can support um, that initiative, I, I think would be a win for me. All right. That sounds great. Is there anything we haven't touched on that you think is important that uh, you want to share before we, uh, we leave? Uh, I think we've, we've covered quite a bit of ground. So yeah, I think that's great. All right, Lisa. Well, thank you so much for joining us on the show. It's been great speaking with you and fascinating. And I learned a few things. It's great. Great. Thanks, David. <laughs> Thanks for having me. You're very welcome. And all the best with your research and uh, going forward. Thank you. All right. That's Lisa Ashton, and she is a PhD candidate, and she's with the University of Guelph. And we've been speaking to her about how Canadian agricultural producers can lead the way in climate action. That's this part of the program, but please don't go away because we will be right back with more right here on Element FM right after this. Now back to Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element. Element. Element FM. Welcome back to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. You are listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. That is 95.7 in Ottawa, 106.5 in Toronto, and anywhere across the country if you download the Radio Player Canada app and type in 106.5 ELMNTFM or 95.7 ELMNTFM, and you can listen on your device of choice anywhere across the country, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. 
Uh, you can also go back and listen to some of our uh, previous interviews uh, that we did on our SoundCloud, and uh, you can also uh, listen online on our website as well. Uh, also, uh, if you have a question or if you've heard something that you'd like to reach out and maybe make a comment or ha ask a question, I'd be more than happy to uh, uh, field that for you. If you want to reach out to me at dmoses at elmntfm.ca, uh, send that off to me. I'd be happy to get your email. I'd like to welcome our next guest to the show, Sarah Buchanan. Uh, she is with Environmental Defense, and she is the Clean Energy Program Manager uh, with the Engineering Department to, in the, you, at the University of Toronto. And uh, she's here to talk about something that we're seeing less of these days, I'm happy to say. Um, and that is pollution. Of course, since COVID-19 kicked in uh, and we've been doing a lot less driving, uh, people are staying home. Uh, we've all heard the stories about how pollution has changed radically. Uh, people are seeing clearer skies. The waters have cleared, of course. Uh, people are seeing animals come back to the city and, and sort of uh, uh, start to take over the city to some degree and participate in the streets and things. And um, it's, it's great to have her here on the show because we're going to be talking about how pollution has changed. Uh, specifically, I guess we're talking about um, maybe near road pollution. Well, I'm working uh, with uh, Professor Marianne Hatsopoulou, and she's okay. uh, she's involved in uh, in their research group that looks at traffic-related air pollution. Mm. And uh, and Sokar, uh, you know, also works with with Marianne. There's a really inspiring group of academics there at U of T um, that are looking at you know not just during the pandemic, but they're looking at uh, air pollution in general. Um, and um, and you know the air pollution that's created by the traffic on our streets. Can you tell us a little bit more about environmental defense then? Yeah, so environmental defense is uh, we're a charity and we work with, uh, with governments, with people, with industry um, on, uh, you know, a number of, of topics to uh, environmental topics. One of those topics is climate change. We also work to get clean water um, and, you know, to reduce sprawl. Uh, we work to reduce mm -hmm. toxics in our environment. And uh, so I work on our climate change team. Hmm. Wow. Uh, sprawl. That's a that's a topic. But so is pollution. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it's a, you use the, the term uh, climate change. But of course, we've heard that, of course, change to uh, a climate crisis. How, how do you how were you viewing this maybe a year ago? Uh, yeah. And that's a great point about using the term climate crisis instead of climate change. I think for a lot of people, the term change doesn't denote the kind of emergency that we're in. Um, and you asked how I was viewing this topic a year ago, probably pretty similarly, you know, to how I'm viewing it now, mm. um, knowing that we need to take drastic action, uh, that we're in, you know, we're in, um, we're in a time where we need to kind of pull together and take action on climate change. But obviously right now in the current moment, we're in a time where we need to pull together and take a really urgent immediate action on the pandemic. Um, mm. And, you know, and, and seeing people, seeing people willing to, um, to do that and to take action uh, to address this global pandemic uh, has actually been really, in some ways, really inspiring and really motivating. And I think there's definitely some lessons to be learned for the climate crisis um, in terms of, you know, how, how willing people are to think of the greater good and just to think, okay, I, you know, I'm going to take action to help my neighbors. How can I do that? Mm. Um, of course, uh, as we pointed out, uh, we've seen air pollution drop. I think people can actually see difference in the air. I know people have mentioned to me, hey, I could see things that I haven't seen before, you know, going down a hill or, you know, see further away. Um, so, you you have been you study these these effects you study the pollutants what is what is it about uh car pollutants and and vehicle pollutants uh near earth or near road that make it uh particular and i understand there's a difference between some of the the pollutants that are given off by vehicles and diesel it gives off certain uh, different kinds than 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 the uh the the gas vehicles yeah yeah, so we're, um, you know, we're doing a project right now, I mentioned, working with academics at U of T 
And we're kind of just looking at everything that's coming out of those tailpipes on, our, in, on the roads in and around Toronto. Um, that includes Hamilton as well. And, you know, some of those things coming out of tailpipes uh, vehicles are greenhouse gas emissions, obviously carbon emissions. And some of those things coming out of tailpipes hurt our health really, really immediately. And those uh, are, are nitri nitrogen dioxide. Um, you mentioned diesel pollution creates a lot of black carbon a lot of particulate matter. So there's uh, lots of big words to describe uh, all the gross things coming out of their tailpipes. Um, but you know, mostly it's, it's, uh, it's damaging our health and it's, uh, it, it's, it, it's basically not good for us and it's something that we can prevent. So we wanted to dig down into, um, you know, what impact can, uh, can cleaning up our air have on our health? So that's, that's what we're working on now. Now we're in a moment, um, as you mentioned, where our air is actually getting a little cleaner temporarily. And that's because people are just driving around less. Um, and I do want to clarify that, you know, the, the pandemic overall isn't helping anyone and that there's no, I, I wouldn't say there's any silver lining here, uh, but we are seeing a drop in traffic related air pollution. Um, history tells us that if it's business as usual, this drop will be temporary. Mm. But if we, you know, if we think hard about it and take this as an example of um, how air pollution, you know, can potentially drop and think, okay, what are other ways that aren't a pandemic that we can reduce traffic related air pollution, then maybe we can take some of these steps forward and implement programs, you know, for example, to get cleaner trucks on the road um, that uh, that aren't hurting the health of people who live next to major highways. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, because apparently that those those fumes that come out of these diesel vehicles are particularly bad for about three weeks or so, if I'm not mistaken. There's a, this, this, the kind of stuff that hangs in the air for mm -hmm. a while, and it's very yeah. Close the, to the, the diesel vehicles, particularly the really old, really big. Uh, trucks, the long haul trucks, are particularly bad for our health, and um, and those are, they have a disproportionate impact on the health, particularly of people who live really close to those highways where a lot mm. of those big trucks are operating. For example, mm. along the 401, mm. and that's um, that's something actually that the the group uh, you mentioned, SoCar, they uh, they did a study earlier this year and looked at you know what kind of air pollution was coming out um, in various areas. And the area close to the 401 um, had a really disproportionately high amount of, uh, of some of the most toxic air pollution. Um, and that, you know, that is, is from the, those diesel vehicles, those big trucks. So, you know, if we're looking for low-hanging fruit, getting those trucks upgraded to, you know, more efficient models, newer models, um, and, you know, just simple things like getting air filters on uh, and improving uh, air quality from those trucks is, is a really good example of some low-hanging fruit. Now we've also got things like buses uh, that run mm -hmm. on diesel as well. And those buses, you know, are in a lot of our transit fleets and they're operating mm -hmm. in dense cities where there's a lot of pedestrians, a lot of people walking around, cycling, maybe standing and waiting at those transit stops. So improving buses and electrifying buses is another way uh, that we can make our air cleaner and we can make our air cleaner um, right where the most people are. So that's another thing we're, we're talking about and we're trying to raise awareness about is, you know, if our cities can take action to electrify their entire bus fleets, then we can go a long way in improving air pollution for people, um, particularly in cities uh, like Toronto, like Ottawa, even Hamilton. Um, so that's, and, and also it'll go a long way in reducing greenhouse gas emissions because those vehicles also create a lot of carbon pollution. And at the same time, when we think about, you know, we're in a time where we're looking to economic recovery solutions. If you look at a solution like adding electric buses to your fleet, if you think about, okay, where are those buses made? A lot of those electric buses are actually made in Canada. Um, and that's a really great way for cities to support economic recovery jobs uh, by buying local and by buying those Canadian-made electric buses, getting them on their roads, improving people's health locally, and then also helping the economy to recover. I'm glad to hear you mentioning this because this is something I was uh, 
uh, thinking about, and I think I, I blogged about it a little while ago, and, and thinking exactly what you're saying is, is it's a perfect time as we're in this lull right now to, uh, you know, we've seen how uh, companies that, uh, manufacturing companies, some car auto dealers and other, other manufacturers that have retooled to help with COVID-19. And I thought, well, if they could retool that quickly to help with this situation, why would this not necessarily then also be a perfect time for them to think about retooling for a greener economy coming out of this and moving into the future? Uh, much like you're saying about these electric buses, which would be great. Um, now, you, you said also that, uh, and you've touched on this a little bit, and I'm just wondering if there's any, any more to add to this. You said this could be, a, this is avoidable in terms of the pollution, I guess, to some degree. And you, I know you talked about upgrading and, and uh, getting filters on vehicles and those kind of things. Is that what you were referring to, or, or what else might you have been referring to when you said that this could be avoidable? Yeah, it's it's avoidable in, in a few different ways. I mean, the first and most obvious way is is simply to not drive as much, whether, mm. that, whether it's cars or trucks, um, really anything that pollutes. Um, if we can reduce just the total number of kilometers driven on the road, for example, from solutions like more people working from home, you know, the cleanest uh, cars are the ones that aren't on the road at all. So that's a really, um, that, that's a good top line thing to think about is how do we get more people out of cars and into maybe public transit, um, onto bikes, um, onto, you know, safe places to walk. Um, so that's one way that we can avoid a lot of this pollution going into the air. Uh, now, of course, you know, we can't suddenly yank all the vehicles off the road. Um, so getting cleaner vehicles on the road is also really important for those trips that do have to be taken. Mm. Um, so I mentioned, you know, electrifying uh, vehicles that are out there and and having having government help uh, and programs enabled and, uh, in order to help speed up that transition which is happening, but it's happening relatively slowly right now. Um, so, you know, we've got some recommendations for how, uh, for how that transition can happen a little bit faster and how we can get more uh, electric vehicles and cleaner vehicles out there on the road. Mm. Please don't go away because we will be right back with more right here on Element FM right after this. Now back to Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element, Element, Element FM. Just going to jump in and say you're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. That is 106.5 in Toronto, 95.7 in Ottawa. Anywhere across the country, if you download the Radio Player Canada app and type in 106.5 ELMNTFM or 95.7 ELMNTFM. On your device of choice, 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. And it's a pleasure to have Sarah Buchanan with us. She is the Clean Economy Program Manager with Environmental Defense. We're talking about near-road air pollution and uh, how things have somewhat changed temporarily, as uh, was pointed out by Sarah earlier, uh, for the better in terms of air pollution. Uh, But if we go back to and come out of this COVID-19 situation to the same way we were operating prior to this, then, then this air pollution situation we find ourselves in will be temporary. However, uh, Sarah, you pointed out, uh, and and I'm I'm are you seeing a willingness, or are you hearing a more of a willingness to to look at things differently, or to maybe consider now that we're in this situation? Because everybody talks about we can't go back to the normal we had. It's interesting how COVID nineteen has has pointed that out to us. Um, but are you hearing that? I'm definitely hearing that. I'm hearing there's a public appetite for it. I'm hearing it from, uh, you know, the folks I talk to about these issues. Um, and I guess the the proof is in the pudding with, with government in terms of whether um, whether we're going to see that manifested in the recovery plans that are put forward. So we're definitely out there asking for it um, and asking for you know strong recovery tools that uh, that can change our patterns and keep pollution low permanently, uh, keep greenhouse gas emissions low permanently, um, and even while our economy bounces back. So uh, I really do hope to see it. I think there's momentum there for sure. There's a ton of people asking for it. um, And I just, uh, yeah, I'd really like to see these solutions move forward, you know, and not just at a federal level, also um, our provincial government and our our city governments as Mm. well, um, thinking about this as, as we recover. 
and you know, there's lots of uh, recommendations we put for things like uh, like retrofitting buildings. Mm-hmm. Um, we know that to slow the impacts of climate change, we already knew that we had to significantly um, redesign or, or retrofit um, tons of buildings. Basically, every existing building uh, in this country, if you think about it, has to have some tweaks to make it more energy efficient and mm-hmm. use less um, use less energy to run. So if you think about the amount of skilled trades work it's going to take to do that, it's pretty massive. Mm. And that's one of the the green recovery tools that we put forward Mm -hmm. is why not make a massive investment in upgrading our buildings in Canada, make them more energy efficient, you know, make them more comfortable so you don't have leaks and drafts all over the place as well. Um, But then also create a lot of jobs and a lot of skills in a really up and coming field. So Canada can be a leader in that. And uh, that's that's one of the things we're asking for. Um, when you say we were asking for, uh, do you have the ear of, of the government or do you have the ear of people that can f- help facilitate these changes then? Yeah, so a big part of our work uh, at Environmental Defense is, uh, is you know, meeting with folks in government at any level from every party um, and bringing forward some of these ideas that we've uh, we've talked through with with people and with stakeholders, etc. Um, and so we do meet regularly um, with governments to bring these idea forward, ideas forward. And uh, and you know we do often uh, get results in seeing these these turn into government policy. Um, and uh, but we need our supporters to do that, and we need uh, the public also um, to do that. So us going in there with just one voice is one mm. thing, but us going in there. When people have been signing petitions uh, and have been, uh, you know, asking for it with their local representatives, um, that's a lot more effective. So we, I would, I'll say that we have the year of government uh, when uh, when people are paying attention. Um, now you mentioned buildings that need uh, retrofits, and and yeah, absolutely, it would it would definitely need a large workforce to uh, go in and start doing that. And again, you know, uh, I've heard, uh, I don't know if you heard this, uh, but I guess it was last week when Twitter announced uh, it told its employees to stay home and not bother ever coming back to the office, just to continue to work from home. Um, so that's about 4,000 people. But if, if other businesses continue to, uh, you know, on that and saying, hey, yeah, this is not necessarily a bad idea, at least, you know, maybe two, three days of the week, people can operate from their home instead of always having to come into the office, one that would hopefully cut down on on travel and pollution um, and, and other areas that put a strain on our environment as well. Um, but uh, there are some things I've also heard that kind of fit in with what you're talking about. And I remember the, the mayor of Toronto, John Tory, saying uh, they're going to, I think it's about 50 miles of roads they're going to restrict and have more access for people, for pedestrians and, uh, and uh, bicycles and restrict uh, more cars. Uh, using that space. Uh, That sounds like it's maybe a step in the right direction. It may be a temporary one. I'm not sure about the permanence of it, but I think that's a great idea. It would be great if every city uh, took that uh, and and ran with it, and and hopefully other cities are doing that. Yeah, absolutely. I was one of those people out there uh, this weekend (laughs) biking along uh, Lakeshore Boulevard Mm, in Toronto, mm. which which had been shut down. Um, But as I was biking, I was like, oh, this is so great. Mm. Um, but I, I want it to be permanent. I do. I want to see more dedicated um, uh, areas for cyclists to feel safe and be able to yeah. to cycle without worrying about fast moving cars around them. And I think yeah. that would get a lot more people out on their bikes um, mm-hmm. and also, you know, dedicated safe places for people to walk. Um, as I mentioned, one of the really, really important ways to permanently reduce uh, air pollution from cars is just to get more people out of those cars. But mm. they have to feel safe and comfortable getting out of those cars in order to do that. So yes, steps like closing down roads, creating safe bike pathways, um, those all help people feel more empowered to get out of their cars. And you know, and, and creating better transit as well. Mm. Um, and so we know that you know, traffic volumes in, in Toronto, by one count I saw, have been cut in half, uh, at least for the end of March. Mm. Um, and a lot of that, you know, frankly, is from people obviously work from home Mm -hmm. and that's also a big part of it as well is if, if there's some folks who 
um, can work from home more often and have realized that in the current moment, um, then if workplaces can enable them to make that decision, um, that's going to really reduce traffic volume on our roads. That's going to keep air pollution down. Um, now, when you talk about retrofitting uh, buildings um, and, and trying to make them more efficient, um, geothermal came to mind. I don't know if that is, is that, a, is that an expensive retrofit? Um, geothermal, of course, is a great way for heating and cooling, is it not? Definitely. Yeah, it's one of those things that it costs a lot of money up front, but then over time it kind of pays for itself. And um, I recall under the previous Ontario government, there was actually a, there was a program where they would give you uh, incentives mm. uh, or they were just starting to plan it out. They hadn't introduced it yet for mm. geothermal. And that was to help address that huge upfront cost. Um, mm. They would help pay for that. Uh, and then uh, you would reap the benefits over time. Right. So basically they have to dig pretty pretty yeah. deep to um, get those loops in the ground right. and uh, you know the idea being that the ground is, is a constant temperature mm-hmm. um, and uh, and it can help either heat or cool your home. How and, far did, uh, how, sorry go ahead. Oh yeah I'm just going to clarify too there's there's a couple different types of geothermal so sometimes people think of the really kind of deep into the like core of the earth uh, mm-hmm. geothermal uh, that sort of big industrial geothermal energy. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, that's also a really, you know, big, important source of uh, potential energy, but there's home geothermal where, you know, it's just in your home, they dig into the ground, they install some loops. Um, and, uh, it's not, it's not the, uh, as I call it, the pits of Mordor, um, <laughs> geothermal where they dig into the, the parts of the earth that can create steam. Right. Cool. Um, now, the other thing, transportation, um, I'm assuming we're talking, talking electric. Uh, I believe that's the, uh, right now, they're, they're, they're having great advance. I've seen a few buses uh, traveling around that are electric now in the city as well. Um, but um, are there alternates? There, there was another alternate. Um, uh, is it, is it uh, the hydrogen? Is that, do you know what the advances are in any of these areas that might make it more economical? Because I think the cost is another one of those things, right, that, that has perhaps inhibited people going uh, to these vehicles. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. So the cost, um, well, the, the cost right now for uh, electric uh, is actually uh, cheaper than hydrogen in general. Mm. Um, hydrogen is another clean technology, you're right, that's been used um, uh, in, uh, in vehicles. But uh, electric vehicles are being created and built at, at more of a scale. So they're, uh, they're coming down in price quite quickly. And it's sort of a chicken and egg thing, right? As more, as there's more demand for electric vehicles, um, they can create them on a larger scale, which means the price comes down, which means there's more demand for them, which means they build more. So it goes on and on. So that's why we're seeing prices of electric vehicles coming down. Um, And I've seen some projections that say that, you know, they're expected to hit actually the price parity, the the same price as Mm. gas vehicles uh, Mm. at some point in the next decade. Um, So we are going to hit a point where, you know, there's just enough people buying them that they'll be about the same price. Um, And that battery technology is getting a lot better as well. But for now, um, that's one of the reasons we really want the federal government to keep uh, the incentive they have for people who buy electric vehicles. Uh, They have, I think it's $5,000 incentive just to help address that upfront cost difference. And we also think that should be temporary. Um, because, you know, we just need to help drive up demand temporarily, um, mm-hmm. and then it's going to hit price parity. Yeah. Those won't be needed anymore. Well, I, I think Ontario had a pretty good incentive at one point, but I think that was axed. Mm-hmm. They did. They had a, they had a much more generous incentive in Ontario, mm-hmm. um, and it was axed in 2018. Yeah. Um, and unfortunately, you know, we saw... Uh, sales drastically decline for electric yeah. vehicles in Ontario. So it did show that it does help uh, bring those numbers up. But, you know, another thing we're calling for is not just incentives. Um, we're also asking for what's called a, a zero emission vehicle sales mandate. So put simply, that's just telling automakers that they have to sell a certain percentage mm. uh, of their fleet as uh, zero emission vehicles. So that can mm. be electric, that can be hydrogen. Mm-hmm. And so it, it puts the onus on the automakers a little bit to actually advertise these vehicles, actually make them available to people 
because one of the barriers, uh, in addition to cost, is just sometimes people can't find them, or they go to a dealership and they say, oh, you know, we, <laughs> we don't have one in stock right now, we'll look into it. Um, partly because automakers will send more electric vehicles to places who have a rule in place that says they have to sell a certain amount of vehicles. Right. Um, so having one, you know, for example, across Canada that says there has to be, you know, you have to sell 25% of your fleet as, as your emission vehicles, that would go a long way in addressing um, that supply issue and making it pretty consistent across Canada. Sarah, it's been wonderful speaking with you. I'm just wondering as we finish up, is there anything we haven't touched on that you think is important to mention just before we leave? Um, you know, just, I guess, uh, just moving forward, it, it's, I think it's helpful to think about how we can make some of the, some of the sort of side things that have happened during the pandemic, uh, you know, for example, air pollution reductions. Um, how can we create a world where this exists without a pandemic? How can we mm. put the tools in place uh, to make sure that air pollution uh, stays low and is even lower than it is now um, without having to completely shut down our economy? And that those tools exist, uh, they're out there, and in fact, those tools can help our economy recover. So, you know, I'd say the smart thing to do is, uh, is to move forward with that green recovery. All right. That's a great way to end our uh, our conversation. It's been a pleasure having you on the show, and I want to thank you. But just before we go, when talking about air pollution, you know, I saw a, it, it's a conversation for another time. However, I recently saw an interview with, with a doctor who was tying in COVID-19 with air pollution. If you think about the, the cities that have, that have been worst hit uh, predominantly, and he gave very good cases as to why that was happening. I thought that was a fascinating conversation. But anyway, as I say, that's for another another time. But it's interesting how it does tie in with something we're we're looking at and trying to uh, battle and get down, just like you're saying, to keep these keep these levels low uh, permanently and into the future and get them even lower. Absolutely. You know, I, I didn't really mention it, but there's been a few studies now pointing to how um, areas with more higher air pollution um, actually can suffer greater impacts of, mm. um, of respiratory diseases like mm. COVID-19. Mm -hmm. So if we can keep our air pollution down lower, we'll also be more resistant to these kind of respiratory illnesses. Right. All right, Sarah, wonderful. Thank you for that. Really appreciate you uh, taking the time to come on the show and, uh, and, and uh, all the best to you in the future. Thank you so much. Great talking with you. Likewise. Take care. That's Sarah Buchanan. She is the Clean Economy Program Manager with Environmental Defense. And that is our show for today. We want to thank you for joining us here on Element FM. This has been Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element. Element. Element FM.